Good evening to you all. How was the sound in the back? Okay? Tonight I'd like to talk about a part of the practice path called sila. And this has been mentioned in a a couple of talks previously. But it's an important piece and I wanted to to go into it in greater depth and uh, tie some things in for you so you come to uh, an understanding of why this is important and how it fits in the context of the practice. So just to translate this word sila, S-I-L-A, it's often uh, translated as uh, ethical training or moral discipline or moral restraint. And if you looked at the Eightfold Path, which is the Buddha's um, uh, strategic action steps (laughs) to liberate your mind, These are step three, four, and five. So the first of these is samavaka, which translates as wise speech. The the, uh, next one is samakamanta, which is wise action. And then uh, the next is samajiva, wise livelihood. So you remember at the beginning of the retreat when we took the refuges and precepts? Do you remember that activity? We took the refuges and then I said, okay, here's the precepts that we're going to observe while we're here on retreat. And the first one that we started with was to refrain from taking life. Remember that? We chanted it in Pali, then we said it in English. So those five precepts that we took are aspects of the training in sila. So there's a very uh, significant, almost complete overlap between the five precepts and the the, uh, ethical practices of the Eightfold Path. The only difference is that in the uh, precepts, restraint from the use of intoxicants is explicitly mentioned and it's uh, included uh, in an interpretation of wise action in the Eightfold Path. And unlike the five precepts, the Eightfold Path directly addresses this question of wise livelihood, meaning what is a skilled <laughs> or unskillful way to make a living? to provide for yourself. So you you remember the last talk that I had, I said that the gradual training that the Buddha talks about starts with sila, these ethical trainings. So tonight I wanted to talk about how ethical conduct or sila is actually skillful means. Now in one of the small groups today, I had somebody ask me, what, what do you mean when you use this term, skillful means? There's a lot of tossing about of this phrase that I'm hearing. And what is it that you mean? So the simplest possible way that I, I can put it is that this, 
is a phrase that's uh, often used to di- uh, in discussing various Buddhist topics, and its general meaning uh, is actions and choices and views which are conducive to movement towards freedom and liberation. In other words, they're, they're functional given what we're trying to accomplish in terms of freeing the mind versus unskillful, which would be things that are counterproductive or actually detrimental to moving in the direction of liberation. And you can see that the definition that I just gave you on skillful means focuses on what works and it's pragmatic and not moralistic. Right? What I just said above doesn't have morality language in it. I said skillful means uh, can be interpreted as actions, choices, and views which are conducive to movement towards freedom and liberation. And one of the hallmarks of the Buddhist path is that it is pragmatic and not so much moralistic in tone. So it's not so much about uh, finger-wagging kinds of condemnation, but about practicalities. So the inquiry is generally, what's actually going on here? And given, given uh, that situation and what the goal is, what's the best way to proceed in furtherance of that goal? So that would assume you, A, know what's going on here, <laughs> which is a mindfulness question, and the second part is that you understand what your goal is, what your, your purpose is in making some of these choices. So it, it's pragmatic, and I think it's important to keep that understanding in mind because when we focus on ethical behavior as uh, Westerners, or at least people who are living in Western culture now, we bring into the conversation our own cultural overlay. So many of us were raised uh, with the monotheistic view of an all-powerful God who tells us what he wants us to do and we need to do it or it's sin. And then if, if we sin, then we're a sinner, which makes us a bad person. And if we're bad enough, we will be punished perhaps eternally for our transgressions. And if we're obedient with God's will for us, we'll be rewarded perhaps forever. Now I realize that that's a bit of a cartoon uh, fundamentalist version of how, how this uh, uh, can be framed within Christianity. And there are many, uh, uh, and Judaism, and, there, uh, and probably Islam as well, and that there are many different more subtle uh, and broad ways to think about morality, but that's a common fundamentalist form of view where there's instructions from above and absolute rules which are very specific, extensive, and often ritualistic. Uh, There's an obedience or punishment kind of model there and a post-death assignment to uh, eternal residence in heaven or hell. Do you think that's a fair characterization? I do. (laughs) And that's what counts. (laughs) Because I'm giving the talk. (laughs) But the Buddhist framework for considering behavior doesn't rely on the 
authority of a, de- a deity. So, so where does morality fit into the Buddhist scheme? And I think it's a, a takeaway point that is uh, at the core of it is that the roots of sila are found in the Buddha's primary insights, the Buddha's own discoveries, how he came to understand uh, reality and how things worked. So the life of the Buddha describes his discovery of pervasive suffering and his uh, quest to find liberation from this so as to free himself and help others find freedom. And this search for him was powered by an altruistic intention and very strong paramis or perfections of the heart as well as very, very strong sila. So he was a very moral and ethical person. And it's understood that his uh, moral strength was a kind of empowerment that gave him moral standing to crack the code of how suffering is created and how it can be undone. In other words, the strength of his sila was part of why his mind was so clear and that he had the conditions, the causes and conditions, the karma, to be able to break through and discover this understanding just from observing Uh, experience directly. So once the Buddha found liberation, he then had the challenge of formulating his understanding in a way others could understand and uh, use to gain their own liberation. So the structure of his teachings is the Four Noble Truths and and the Eightfold Path, where he he basically puts it out there. This This is what the problem is. Um, this is uh, what causes the problem. Uh, This problem can be reverse engineered and undone, and this is how you can do it. That's basically a simple description of the Four Noble Truths uh, um, schema. And then the Eightfold Path is the, the means, picks up on the Fourth Noble Truth and is the means, or the description of how you go about doing that quite specifically, how you... You undo the mind's suffering which arises through deluded craving. So the Buddha describes how things are and then given that, how to use the way reality works to become free. So some of you may have heard uh, us talk about causes and conditions or some of you may know the teachings on dependent origination. Um, And it's taught in many, many different ways. But it's crucial to understand that from the Buddhist perspective, things happen causally. What is present is present due to causes and conditions. What will happen next is dependent on causes and conditions those that are uh, present now as well, those uh, those that may be uh, arising in the future. So things don't come out of nothing. Experiences don't arise out of nowhere. 
And the Buddha talks about uh, this uh, on one occasion in the Samyutta Nikaya, where he says, when there is this, then there's that. For instance, he might be saying, if, if you were to fill in some blanks, um, when there is mindfulness, there are wholesome states. When there is not this, there is not that. When there is, you could fill in some blanks, these are my words, when there is no awareness, uh, there can be no mindfulness. When this arises, that arises. When this ceases, that ceases. When, so for instance, in the last one, when this ceases, that, that ceases. When craving ceases, suffering ceases. So on the night of his awakening, the Buddha saw very deeply into the causes of suffering and how they, suffering arises in an interdependent way from ignorance, craving, and a wrong view of self. So the Buddha's understanding of this ignorance that uh, causes suffering isn't um, that we just, you know, don't under, know some stuff. Because he says the kind of ignorance that, that we're dealing with is actually more active than that. It, it's an active misunderstanding of how things are. But once the Buddha came to see how suffering comes to be, i.e. the causes and conditions that leads to its arising and the causes and conditions that hold it into place, he then saw how it could be released and how it could be undone. So you could say that the Eightfold Path is, uh, for those engineers in the group, reverse engineering. Right? You see what's happening, you see what goes into it, and you say, well, if you take this part away, if you take that part away, if you introduce this causation, oh, then that's not happening anymore. So the Eightfold Path is really an, uh, explicates how to use the reality of causation to our advantage. And these uh, ethical views or these ethical trainings are part of the path to liberation. Now to talk a little bit about the first step of the Eightfold Path, what is called wise view, there's two different levels of wise view. One is a transcendent uh, wise, uh, wise view, which is talking basically about the Four Noble Truths. These are like interlocking explanations. But the second part of uh, the first step on the Eightfold Path is something called mundane wise view. And there's a, uh, an American monk named Bhikkhu Bodhi who has a new anthology of the Buddha's teachings out where he goes through all the Buddha's teachings and he pulls from the Buddha's teachings those teachings that he thinks are most important for people to understand what is going to be necessary for social and communal harmony. So it's called The Buddhist Teachings on Social and Communal Harmony. It's an anthology. And what he says about mundane wise view that 
human beings need to understand in order ha to have the platform to create the kind of uh, world that we want is four different things. He says people need to understand karma. And what he says means by karma is that morally significant actions have potential to produce results corresponding to their ethical qualities. Morally significant actions have potential to produce results corresponding to their ethical qualities. Meaning, an ethical action sets in, into motion causes and conditions that can lead to the arising of a similarly ethical or wholesome kind of experience and vice versa, unwholesome actions have the potential to produce results corresponding to their suffering nature. A second thing he says that, you know, it's really important for human beings to understand what leads to growth and what leads to devolution of a person. And this can be a very uh, a con confusing point for us, right? What is, um, what is onward leading and what is actually going to be regressive? Because our natural instinct often is to go along with herd behavior or to uh, follow behavior that uh, seems to be the most pleasant or perhaps which, which gives us, um, you know, superior social status or gives us, you know, the most money or you know, the, the, the most sex, or you name the, the drive. So, but if we just, just follow in, uh, uh, instinct, we're, we've got a, pro a problem. Because instinct alone doesn't know the difference between wholesome, uh, skillful actions and unwholesome, unskillful actions. There's no discernment in it. There's no discernment. And knowing the difference, making that discernment is really important. What actions of body, speech, and mind are conducive to the cultivation of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom are conducive to, the, to renunciation goodwill and insight and what kind of actions of body, speech and mind leave us mired in craving, aversion and delusion. And the fourth thing that he says is, you know, uh, human society or us humans, we need to understand that there's we need to take personal responsibility for our deeds and that actions have immediate and downstream effects. And I'm probably paraphrasing with these, but this is my, my reading of what he's saying in regard to mundane wise view. Responsibility for our actions because they have effects. And I think the other night Marcia was talking about uh, how our our actions, our actions coming from metta, for instance, uh, have many uh, 
follow-on consequences. They are actually causes and conditions of things in the future, many of which we will never know. But if you think, for instance, about the effect that uh, connection you may have had with, you know, uh, a kind teacher when you were in high school who saw you and, you know, responded to you in a particular way where you, you felt, for instance, you had a lifeline or, you, you know, you felt like you had a toehold or, you know, somebody that kind of understood you. We know from our own experience that these kinds of connections with people are very important, right? They can be life-altering. So, you know, how, how many of you unknowingly have been that person to somebody else? A lot, a lot of you I would be willing to bet. And very often you, you have no idea. But that's a downstream effect of the mind being uh, in a skillful uh, state, operating out of a wholesome state and just being organic. Now I want to say something here about the second step of the Eightfold Path, which is wise intention. Wise intention. The first the first one is wise view, the second one is wise intention. So this term really focuses on the idea of resolve or aspiration. So in other words, it's the intention to exert our will and ourselves in order to move towards an end of suffering. So uh, we're saying we want to move towards liberation and we'll use our energy accordingly. So part of this is the intention, direct in- intention for compassion and for metta and the uh, direct intention for renunciation of seeing sense pleasures as the, the whole point of it. Point of it. But in, intrinsic to this choice that we're going to use our energy uh, towards uh, the cultivation of what will get us moving towards liberation is intrinsic that we're going to conduct ourselves in ways that's conducive to spiritual pro- progress. So in other words, ways that loosen the bonds of ignorance and greed and aversion and cultivate the opposites non-delusion, better known as wisdom, generosity, uh, and loving-kindness, which is sometimes thought of as harmlessness. And here's where you see that the, um, the next section of the Eightfold Path, wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood, come in to provide the framework to allow us to avoid unskillful thoughts and actions that could thwart us on this developmental path, right? Because we're saying, okay, we're going to refrain from things that directly strengthen greed, aversion, and delusion. So again, the key idea is that our subjective experience is, and all of reality is conditioned and that the present moment is caused by conditions arising from the past and from the present and manifesting in the now, and that what we do now is causations for arising that will manifest in the future. 
therefore it's in our best interest to make choices and create conditions that support our aspiration towards freedom. So if you want to think of it in this terms, it's desirable to front load supportive conditions to our own awakening by exercising basic moral restraint. So you can think of the sila as a a skillful means to support the arising of conditions conducive to well-being and liberation, which simultaneously weakens conditions which are not conducive. And to think of this on the collective level, you know, a community of people who are well-developed morally, who have sila, have the basis for a positive communal life. You know, there can be, can there be peace and safety in its absence where people are killing and stealing and lying and living in a drug haze and exploiting people? So, you know, this is not a formula for group flourishing. So, sila is important for the evolution of groups of people as well. But when you think about it, you take it, take it back to another level. What are groups composed of but individuals? Right? While we learn very often sila from groups, whether it's our family group or the larger culture that we're uh, embedded in, we, we act individually. So we may not necessarily be getting much support from those around us in terms of understanding sila, let alone seeing people acting according to it, nor getting uh, support and guidance in learning how to do so. So there's a lot of responsibility that falls back on the individual in the cultivation of this. But groups of people where there's no sila, or little sila, or weak sila, there's no, there's no basis for goodness to arise, is there? How could it? So let me go into a related topic, which is what is specifically skillful about sila in regard to this question of spiritual progress, of movement towards greater freedom of mind, of moving away from uh, entrapment or capture by greed, aversion, and delusion. So when the wholesome quality of mindfulness is strong, pure and continuous, there's an absence of greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. Greed, hatred, and delusion cannot coexist with strong, continuous mindfulness. Thus, we wouldn't be acting in harmful ways because we're not under the sway of greed, hatred, and delusion. However, such continuous mindfulness is not often the state of mind of the average worldling. And I think we can all testify to that, right? I mean, if we all had strong and continuous 
mindfulness, there would be absolutely no need to practice, right? Or if you did practice and you sat down, you said, I'm going to attend to the sensations of the breath at the Anapana spot, it would be like, okay. <laughs> how long, how long w- we going to do that, you know? <laughs> So then, if the if if the mind you know has a lot of conditioned naughtiness in it, which it seems to, then a, a way you can think of sila is that when when sila is observed, it prevents uh, versions of greed, hatred, and delusion from running wild while the mind is thus clouded. Right. So precepts, for instance, are a bit like those rumble uh, strips that they have on highways. You know, when you start going over the center line and you start, you know, going into the pullover lane, if you're not paying too much attention or, you know, you're, you're twiddling with your phone even though you shouldn't, you know, you start hearing the blah, 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 right? It's like, wake up, wake up. So, you know, they help keep you on the road and help keep you from the effects of running into the ditch. Now, an important point is that because sila is so foundational to the path, it being the third, uh, third fourth, and fifth steps on the Eightfold Path right after wise view and wise intention. It's necessary uh, for the success of the meditative trainings. So remember a bit earlier on I was talking about the Buddha and how the Buddha had very strong sila. That, you know, his commitment to non-harming was... uh, was very deep. His, his, His personal ethics were... Uh, impeccable, and that that was part of what gave him the power, the spiritual power, and to crack the code. So, the success of other trainings in meditation, which actually do the cutting through delusion, is dependent on us having a level of basic morality. So the Buddha, Buddha once had a monk who came to him and who, uh, I guess he was in a hurry or something, and he said, okay, give me the, give me, give me the training in a nutshell. <laughs> There's all the, these characters showing up in the suttas, you know, but he is another one, but, you know, just, just give it to me quick, you know. I don't want, like, the long discourses and all that kind of stuff. Just, just give it to me quick. And he says... So the Buddha says, first, establish yourself in the starting point of wholesome states. That is, in purified moral discipline and right view. Then, when your moral foundation is purified and your view straight, you should practice the four foundations of mindfulness. So in other words, sila, or this ethical conduct, uh, moral restraint, 
gets you started on the path of development, and then purification of mind takes place through the practices of concentration and insight meditation. So looking at the arc of the Eightfold Path, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, the, the, the Samadhi trio, are last in the path. So, and this is, um, you know, us, us modern people, we're like, hurry up and get her done, you know, like, I want to get in there and I want to do it and I want to get the, the teachings and I want to meditate and I want to, you know, I want to do this, you know, I want to go see the Dalai Lama and get the empowerments. Can you find your breath? No. Well, but I want the highest teachings. You know? <laughs> Give it to me right now. Give me the highest teachings. But the, but the foundation isn't there. Such a one would not understand the teachings if one were to hear them. Because the, the mind isn't purified. The bhavana, the cultivation of mind, hasn't been done to allow uh, what has been heard to be understood and assimilated. So there's no way that you can avoid um, this kind of front end grunt work. So considering the role of sila in preparing you for meditation practice, one would uh, observe that the practice of sila prevents actions that lead to remorse and regret and guilt. Right? If you're not doing unwise stuff that's harmful to yourself and others, then when you sit down on the cushion, it doesn't come in to bother you. So a- as a result, the mind is not turbulent, but the mind is able to settle, to clear more easily, and that supports meditation. And because the heart and the mind aren't so reactive and lost in the recycling of past stuff that has been done or not done. So the sila is a kind of protection for yourself as well as for other people. You know, it protects, protects your mind from agitation. It protects your mind from regret, from remorse. It protects your mind from worrying about things coming to light or, you know, getting caught or, you know, somebody finding out or having to keep up a false front to pretend something's going on or that it's a certain way when you know it really isn't, right? It lets you live in a more integrated, integrous uh, kind of way where, you know, what you see is what you get. What you say is what you do. You're, You're lined up. You're moving in the position of having the moral standing to crack the code. So the sila, the observation of sila, is a protection for oneself and for others. 
And we know from our own experience that a, com- a community of any type, you know, whether it's a family or a workplace or a sangha that has strong sila is an internally safe place, right? Stomach may deal with things from the rest of society or the outside world, but internal it's a safe place. And I can remember when I, I first came to IMS, um, one of the things that really struck me about this place was there were no locks on the doors. Now that has changed due to things going on in the external world, but there were no locks on the doors. And somebody asked me, one of my friends uh, from Seattle asked me what it was like being around IMS. And I said, well, it's kind of like well, you know, like if somebody left a left a pile of a hundred dollar um, bills on the table in the dining room, if they went back three hours later, they'd still be there. Right? But when you, when you're in a community of people where the sila, the commitment and practice of sila is high. You can know that you know people's actions aren't going to be intentionally harmful, and so the seeds of future turmoil in that group aren't sown. And so cooperation and peace emerge easily in that kind of a place. Be- and with a baseline of decency, trust can emerge. So that creates a situation where a community can, uh, can uh, flourish. And when there are problems, you've got some of the basis for working through them because there is, is trust and you, you can assume that on a basic kind of level, at least, people are coming from a good place, right? They're not going to like try to kneecap you or... <laughs> right? Which isn't to say stuff doesn't come up because in any group of people, stuff does come up. You know, we all have our shadow sides and, you know, unseen material that can be present. So it's not all sweetness and light, but people are committed to working within a certain moral framework. And you can expect that and rely upon that. It makes a huge difference. And then, you know, finally considering uh, sila on... um, the individual level, again. And this is a classic teaching. And some of you will go with this and some of you won't, and that's fine. But Bhikkhu Bodhi says, at the karmic level, the observation of sila ensures harmony with the the law of karma, hence favorable results in the course of future movement through the round of repeated birth and death. So he's talking about the understanding of rebirth and that, you know, what determines uh, rebirth, the type of rebirth, is dependent on sila. What kind of wholesome or unwholesome actions of body, speech, and mind are contributed to the causes and conditions present. So, 
let me talk briefly about the cornerstone practices of sila. Now that I've framed it <laughs> fairly extensively for you, let me talk about what the sila practices are in the Eightfold Path. So the first of this is right speech or wise speech. And interestingly enough to me, this comes first. And if, if you remember the precepts, this is also one of the precepts, right? To refrain from improper speech or however it's put there. So this means uh, in the Eightfold Path to abstain from lying, divisive speech, abusive speech, and just too much idle chatter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Blah, 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 blah. Waste of time. Waste of time, waste of bandwidth. So if we, you're going to positively uh, phrase this, you would say, using words that are true, friendly, and benevolent, pleasant and gentle, meaningful and useful. And Bhikkhu Bodhi has a whole section in his book on proper speech, which includes developing skill in speech. So upon reflection, I think we can all know how much harm can come from unwise speech, right? And we've, we've you know, we can all think of times when we've said something or, you know, and or been the object of somebody else saying something and how much it can hurt, how harmful it can really be when there's no skill there and, you know, you just blurt something out and or are reactive to something somebody said or did and like, you know, just really... So, on the other hand, when you think of uh, certain people who have had the power of wise speech, I think of, for instance, Martin Luther King Jr. and... uh, his speech, I, ha- I have, have a dream speech. The power of that, the power of that vision, the uplift, the encouragement, you know, the arising of faith, the arising of energy, the arising of inclusion, the arising of unification of, of groups of uh, disparate people together in a vision. So powerful. And then our present circumstances where high levels use divisive speech that categorize whole groups of people in certain ways that are demeaning, aggressive, dismissive, ugly, ugly, and all the social fracturing that comes with that. The mistrust, the seeding of division, the deliberate seeding of conflict and distrust. So you can see this right speech area is a whole area of practice which is very major for us as humans. Because so much harm can happen here just through this 
amazing capacity, capacity we have to emit certain sounds which transmit meaning. It's kind of wild, isn't it? Everything that can get transmitted and everything that can get stirred up just from... The second of these uh, sila places, right action or wise action, this ad- addresses how to live in daily life. So if you were negatively uh, phrasing it, it would be to abstain from taking life. Well, you heard that in the precepts too. To abstain from stealing, you heard that in the precepts too. To abstain from sexual uh, harm, you heard that too. To abstain from taking intoxicants which lead to heedlessness, you heard that in the precepts. But if you were going to positively phrase that, you'd say, knowing how deeply our lives entwine, I undertake the training to protect beings. I undertake the training to take only what is freely given to me. I undertake the training to protect relationships and avoid sexual harming. I undertake the training to speak truthfully and kindly, and to protect the clarity of my mind through avoiding intoxicants. And then the last of these is right or wise livelihood. And this incorporates the idea of ahimsa, of harmlessness towards other beings. And it's focused on the understanding that you shouldn't work or earn a living by doing things that cause harm to others. So, if it, you know, to, to phrase it in negatives, you'd say, to refrain from trading in arms and lethal weapons. Well, half the economy would just collapse. <laughs> Intoxicants. Well, that's poisons, killing animals, and cheating. Also, business and human beings, like slave trading, human trafficking, and prostitution. And to refrain from dishonest means of gaining wealth, like scheming, persuading, hinting, and belittling. So how do you, how do you earn a living? <laughs> What's left? <laughs> Oh, we can't all work at IMS. (laughs) But if you're putting it in positive uh, phrasing, you could say, to work and earn a living in ways which express loving kindness, compassion, respect, and support for living beings. Now, interestingly enough, the Buddha himself had no problem with wealth. In fact, you know, he he talks in the suttas about righteous wealth righteously gained as actually being a good thing. Righteous wealth righteously gained. And the tagline to that is not used selfishly or hoarded, but spread around 
distributed generously, used for common good, used to make people's lives easier and happier, right? Not hoarded at the expense of people who need health insurance. Okay. That was my tag. So, so just in conclusion here then, we can by our choice of actions set in motions conditions that are conducive to our own growth and awakening. And by undertaking this training in sila, we move towards the mind that's happy and open and free from remorse and anxiety and easily concentrated. Right? Easily concentrated, easily settled, and then practice is uh, easier and more fruitful as well as more pleasant. But to really practice sila well, we have to move beyond moralism and rule-bound automaticity. Right? This is, more, this is more subtle than just following a punch list. But following a punch list is better than not knowing that there even is a list. <laughs> you know, by using what mindfulness and clear perception that we have and having a commitment to the growth of our own wisdom and compassion and loving kindness, we'll grapple with a lot of dilemmas. I'm sure people have questions now about, oh, is this right livelihood? Is this not right livelihood? What do they mean by sexual misconduct? You know, what do they mean by intoxicants? What do they mean by, right? A lot of different levels of, of questions. And the, the teachings and the commentaries on the, on the teachings... Uh, by ancient as well as modern Buddhist teachers have some response to those questions, but that's a lot of it is an investigation for you. So the application of these principles to daily life situations it requires your own intelligent engagement, which is a process that actually supports the development of your own grounded understanding as we deepen our ability to see causation and to choose in a way that supports our deepest aspirations. Because it's really not about what do I get to do. It's really about what do I want to cause to happen? Right? What do I want to front load? What do I want to move towards? Not, not oh, bad boy, spank your hand. You know, or naughty girl. That's nasty. Right? That's the childlike version of morality. So that's the question of making the choice that supports our our deepest aspirations as we can identify them and grappling with some of this ourselves. But it's important to realize that our own liberation is tied up with the well-being of other people So we don't actually exist as autonomous human beings. You know, we're not 
self, self arising, right? We came out of a mama with the help of a papa and we've been relying on other people ever since. So we're all part of this human community which also shapes our actions and which we shape whether our, the actions are skillful or unskillful. And we're always putting forward causes and conditions that will affect others in the immediate and into the future. So we're actors as well as act, acted upon by everybody else. All the other humans and all the other beings, we're all in the soup together. So uncomfortable sometimes, isn't it? So uncomfortable. But at the earlier part of the talk I was talking about, bhavana, this development of the heart and mind, and how the Buddhist teachings give us the tools to do that. And how important it it is for us to take up the tools for our own well-being, but for the well-being of others, for the well-being of the collective. Earlier I was saying, well, it can't get better if the minds of people aren't more developed. So where, does the, the, where are the humans that are developing their minds so that they, can, they have an upgraded capacity when they act? That they aren't so entrapped by their cultural conditioning, by their reactivity, that comes with having a human body and a human mind, that aren't so afraid, that aren't so selfish, that maybe have some wisdom, maybe have some restraint. So you may not realize that this is part of my scheme and teaching in this environment, but To me, you are the people. You and people like you in places like this, here in the West and all across the world, not necessarily just Buddhist meditation centers, but places like this where people with serious minds come because they sense that there's something that can open perhaps or at least needs to be investigated and they're motivated to to explore it and develop themselves. Hmm. Kacha. So the sila, these precepts are described by the Buddha as pristine, traditional, ancient gifts, ancient gifts, which give to immeasurable immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. 
pristine traditional ancient gifts which give to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and depression. So this observance, this training, this bhavana, this development and exploration of the ethical trainings supports not only our well-being but that of everyone else. And it'll make your mind calmer. So having practiced together this uh, offering and uh, hearing of the blessed holy Dhamma, may the benefit of our practice be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.